Good morning. Yeah, as she said, well done for being here. Spring break and also lost an hour, so well done. I'm proud of myself for getting here. Well, it's good to see you. Let me just take a look at you. Sometimes I don't pause enough to... It's like when you get married and you, you're so busy that you turn around and you just walk down the aisle and hang on, this is a great moment. I feel like this every Sunday, so it's, it's good that you're here. I'm glad that you're here. God, let me say this, God has you here for a reason. So welcome to this family. We are weeks in, I think this is Sermon 10 or 11 in this series. We started early January into just a slow march through the first few chapters of the Bible. We'll end up going through Genesis 4, we're almost there. We've been in this amazing one and two, Genesis one and two, and just all of God's purposes, purposes for creation, a good creation. He sets man and woman over creation. And then we've, we plopped, we didn't plop, we walked into, sometimes that feels kind of like a plop. Uh, we walked into Genesis three and the fall last week. And so we're, we're squarely into that and into really the consequences of the fall this week. J.R. Tolkien, an Oxford professor and author of Lord of the Rings, amongst other things, wrote, that's right, I'm starting with him this week. Yeah, just get over it, yeah. He wrote in a letter, there cannot be any story without a fall. All stories are ultimately about the fall. This is perfect timing, and we hoped it would be so. Uh, Perfect timing, sort of liturgically, as far as an an annual church calendar, because uh, Lent has just started. Lent being that season wherein we sort of ramp up into um, uh, Good Friday, into yeah, Palm Sunday, Good Friday, Passion Week, and then Easter. And so we really take a special f- uh, attention and focus during this time of year to prepare ourselves for what Christ endured. And um, as his people who are one with him, he did something we can't ever do, thank God, for us. And, but still, we, we prepare ourselves for sort of uh, thinking it in a special way about what put him on that cross. Which is, which is me and you, which is us, our sin. Um, so it all, it all started here, though. It all comes out of this text that Lindsay read. Walker Percy, a doctor for the first half of his life, medical doctor in Louisiana, and became an author at age 40 or so after a big sickness that sort of helped him reconsider things. He wrote a book called, one of his many, called Lost in the Cosmos. And he talks about in Lost in the Cosmos, he says, he has a bunch of just questions that are humorous, but really profound and, and searching. And one of the questions is, he says, how is it that we can know about quasars and far-flung galaxies that are literally millions of light years away, but know so little about ourselves? Um, for instance, I can walk into a room full of strangers, and within five minutes, people can know things about me that I don't even see about myself because I've been blinded to them in certain ways. I lack certain bits of self-knowledge, many bits, the closer they touch to my will uh, because of my sin, because of the fall. A man, how is it that a man can live with his wife for 50 years and not really know her or vice versa? How can this be? This text tells us how this can be. Our rebellion against God represented through Adam and Eve, in Adam and Eve, has completely cast us adrift. We have been cut loose from the anchor of our souls, from not only the author of life, but the source of life, life itself. And so the process of death set into our first parents and carried forth through their progeny. So let's look at this this morning. Just two points this morning, man's situation and God's response. Man's situation first, 
and then God's response. Um, man's situation first, or what death looks like. This text shows us sort of, we looked last week at the actual picking and eating of the fruit, the rebellion, but now we're in the thick of eating, uh, the, sort of feeding on that fruit. What is, how does that manifest itself? How does that play out in the life of our forebears and in our lives? Um, it's not, God said, in the day that you eat of this tree that I've told you not to eat of, you will die. You will, what? Surely die. Dying, you will die in the Hebrew. So what we might be expecting after a cursory reading, if we've never read this before, is them just to drop dead. And so we might be surprised that actually Adam and Eve don't drop dead. They go on living. Um, but the process of death has begun in them. Like I said a week or two ago, it's as if, so they've, cut, we, they've severed themselves through rebellion to God through disobeying his word from life itself. It's like cutting a branch off of a tree trunk. It's got plenty if it's been attached to a living tree of greenness and life and sap in it, and so lying there on the ground, it, it's got life in it for a long time. But the process of death irremediably, irrevocably has begun in that branch and as it sits there. And in the end, it's only good for one thing, burning. That's it, kindling. And so the pro, we see the process of death has begun, and it doesn't start until body and soul are consumed. It's like ink in water. It won't stop. It pervades. It doesn't just pervade Adam and Eve, but what? Everything they've been given dominion over, which means everything that's been created, okay? So we see this play out in a bunch of ways. First of all, there's just a real fear of openness and of being exposed and known that we see immediately set into this wide-open couple one chapter earlier, literally naked and not just physically naked, but exposed and open and happy to be so in every way, spiritually, emotionally, and otherwise. They are now doing this number. Are you familiar with that number? I sure am. Man, it's the human condition. Tom Hanks, he said in this interview on this podcast, it's my favorite that I mentioned last week, Desert Island Discs. He's interviewed for about 45 minutes and she's talking to him about this set that he was on in the Middle East and he was filming some movie that I haven't seen, maybe you have, and he was talking about being in the middle of the weeks-long thing, filming, and she said, okay, so you get up that morning, and you just feel like you have it licked. Like, you're Tom Hanks. You're literally, like, one of the best actors in Hollywood, and you've done this. He could play any role. He's so versatile. He's been at it so long. He's so likable, and he said something that really surprised me, but which so comforted me, and I hope comforts you, but really touches on our condition. He said, no, no, on the contrary. He said, I, every day I wake up and I think, is today the day they find out that I'm a fraud? Wow. I'm not the only one that feels like that? Tom Hank, if Tom Hanks wakes up feeling like that, surely we all do. All of us except those who are deluded by their pride and visions of grandeur. All of us who are honest enough about ourselves to say, man, I, I know deep down I'm a fraud. There's this deep insecurity about me. Um, and so we just try to cover it up. And you see here Adam and Eve trying to cover themselves up with what? With fig leaves? Have you ever seen someone in leaf clothes? Exactly. You haven't because it's a terrible idea. It doesn't work. Uh, we can't, it's pitiful. It, we can't 
cover, they're just scrambling. You know, they're sewing together. Can you imagine? They're sewing together fig leaves to try to cover themselves. Um, I thought immediately of that when you're a kid, and maybe it's happened more recently if you've been sleeping on someone's couch or something, but you have some blanket, and it's just not quite big enough, and all night, you know, it's just cold, and you're trying to cover yourself up, and it just doesn't work, and so every, you know, 10 minutes or so, you feel like you're waking up and trying to get under it totally, but it never happens. You never get warm. Um, We do this. We do this with, we try to cover ourselves up in this understood fraudulency and this deep insecurity with, you name it, relationships, money, possessions, toys, hobbies, work, pleasure, but it won't work. They just, like that little blankie, they won't do the trick. They will not cover us. There's also, so there's this fear of openness. There's also this finger pointing in 12 and 13. God comes to Adam and he says, he says, where are you? Some poignant words that we're going to get to in a second really poignant words. Um, but Adam, what does he do? He's not like, here I am. You know, I mean, you're God. Why should I hide from you? No. He, he blames immediately the woman. Uh, he says, hey, I, I hid from you because I was afraid. We'll get to that in a second. Because um, and, and I, I was naked. Who told you you were naked? And then he's like, she did. Uh, she gave, she's the reason, you know, she gave me the fruit, uh, the, but he doesn't just say there, he says, the woman that you gave me. So he, not only does he blame his wife and, and shift, which we're all very familiar with, I, I'm very familiar, not only with, with blame casting, but shifting the blame to my wife in particular. Um, but he, even Adam obliquely blames God. You gave her to me and she messed up, and now that's why I'm in this situation. So, and we see Eve blame as well, the serpent. So there's this sense of finger pointing that comes into the, the warp and woof, the fabric of the constitution of humanity. And I'm so familiar with it. Robin and I, my wife and I, we have shorthand for it. When we start doing that, we just get into this vortex where we're, we're pointing the finger and blaming each other. And you can like, this happens with so many sins of mine, but you can, you know, you could see yourself in the middle of it as it's happening and you're like telling yourself to stop, but you can't stop. And we're going to get into more of that next week. The power of sin, there's a power. It's not just something I can shut off. There's a power. And we, we, we have a shorthand for it. We're like, we're Genesis three in this beast right now. You know, like we're right in the middle of Genesis three or like somebody will be with us and it'll be like, our Seth, our eight-year-old, will try to break up the fight, you know, or whatever. And we're arguing, mommy and dad, you're arguing well, you know. <laughs> yeah. uh, yeah. Sorry, Seth, Genesis 3, you know. We'll say sorry at some point, but right now we're getting after it. Um, but there's also this animosity to God. There's this, and this is, the most, I think, the most heartbreaking. The, the, the castigating and the finger, the finger pointing is, is sad, but there's this deep antipathy, this resistance, if I could say it, to God, like oil and water or like two same poles of a magnet that you're trying to get together and they just will not get together um, there's this resistance. I am king rather than the I am who ought to be king and who is king. There's this me, the me monster, as one comedian puts it, wanting to seat myself on the throne uh, that you see coming out right here in these early verses, right after they take of the fruit. So they're hiding from their maker behind trees. Again, it's ridiculous. Think about it. This is the God who we've just seen makes everything with his word the almighty, the uncreated one, and they're hiding behind trees from him. It's just sad. Um, it's ridiculous. But we do the same thing again with, with busyness. I mean, I, I could, the list is as long as the day is long. 
busyness, just so we don't have to stop and think about why are we here? Why am I so broken? Why don't I know these people? Why don't I know myself? Why is there this dissonance between me and my creator? Um, Why do I make up excuses for why there's not a creator? Why do I formulate really intense arguments as to why one doesn't exist? And on and on it goes. Work, relationships, again, same stuff. Stuff, knowledge, degrees, education, good behavior, religion. Religion is a huge tree that we hide behind from God. We hide in religion from God. Check that box, check that box, check that box. I'm good. I don't have to let the living God deal with me, the living God who sees all. Many people hide behind religion. Um, I did a doctorate in, New, in Edinburgh at a place called New College, and many students there, I noticed this, many students go there to hide. Many, many doctoral divinity students who've devoted their lives to studying God go there to hide from God. Many, many, many. I can check that box. I'm, I'm so close uh, that I'm, I'm so far away, but I seem like I'm close, you know, but I, want, I really want nothing to do with God. Let me just study him and keep him safe and in a box and... Um, and again, sort of like I touched on the new atheism with whether it's Dawkins or Dennett or, or Harris, Sam Harris, um, there's a hiding from God and a pushing God away in this vociferously arguing against his existence. Have you ever thought about just how, why is it so strange? Why, why it seems so strange that you would spend your entire life almost devoted to arguing against the Easter bunny or, or unicorns? or leprechauns, or Bigfoot, although I do think there could be a decently strong case for Bigfoot. Hindu Kush, The Long Walk, it's a great book, enough said. But that aside, um, there's, you know, I'm railing at, I'm, I'm developing all these intense arguments for this thing that clearly doesn't exist. Maybe they're pushing down the truth that they know to be true in unrighteousness, and we all, hey, we all do it. It's sad. Um, verse 10 reads like a tragedy because it is tragedy. They hear what? The sound of their maker of God Almighty, the one who made us for himself um, in, the, in paradise. Um, they hear the sound of him and what's the reaction? They don't run to meet him to take that walk in the cool of the day with him. He's come to walk with him. No. They hide, as I've, as I've been saying, they hide. Um, they're afraid of him. They're terrified of him. Something has gone terribly wrong in the core of who humanity is. Um, sin, this rebellion against God and his word, fundamentally changes the nature of our relationship with our maker, bottom line. It moves them and us from friendship to fear. Verse eight says, they hid from the presence of the Lord. Literally in the Hebrew, almost every time you read, especially in the ESV, the presence of the Lord, it's almost always panim, which is the face of the Lord, the face of God, Um, because face expresses what? Presence, but also relationship, doesn't it? Um, Exodus 33, God says to Moses on the mountain and through Moses to Israel, man cannot see my face and live. Again, something we know by this point in Exodus, something has gone terribly wrong to where God, we can't see the face of God anymore. We're terrified of him. And he comes down on the mountain and what does Israel say? Moses, go up for us. We don't want to even be with God. We're terrified of him. Things have gotten to that point because of this, because of this text that Lindsay read, Genesis 3. Face is everything. Face is favor. Face is personality. How do you know someone's personality? Eyes, window to the soul, countenance, visage, face, um, the mouth. It's all there. 
Imagine, let me put it, let me make a counterpoint, put it negatively. Imagine cultivating, imagine cultivating a really healthy, robust, soul-satisfying relationship with someone with your back turned to them or with their back turned to you. Man, we're getting so much out of this thing. I'm so thankful that you're in this, but they never turn around. The entire years of a relationship, you don't see their face. It's it's almost impossible to imagine. Um, It's almost impossible to imagine. And so the face is favor. The face is relationship. The face is knowing and being known. And and all of a sudden, they hide themselves from his face, from his presence. Um, We also see sort of at the end that Lindsay read in verses 17 through 19, other effects of the fall. So we're, we hide from God, from each other, and from ourselves, but also um, men, are, the earth is gonna fight back, God says in verse 17. He says, you're gonna till the earth for your livelihood, and whatever you do, whether it's you know a doctor, a lawyer, a gardener, a cook, uh, a, bake, a baker, a candlestick maker, what, whatever you're doing, when you go out to do it, to till that earth as it were, your work is still good. God made it before the fall. He made us to be workers like he is, but now it's gonna cause boredom, pain, and you're gonna toil by the sweat of your brow. There's gonna be so much involved with work, not gratifying. It doesn't yield to us what we think it's going to. There's a great short story. This isn't in the notes, but it just came to mind called, I've mentioned it before, Leaf by Niggle, N-I-G-G-L-E by J.R. Tolkien again. And he captures this this idea of how we so we see all that could be through our work and in this life, this guy's trying to paint a masterpiece of a tree and all in his life that he gets around to, his entire life, is painting this one leaf and then he dies. Hey, don't worry, there is redemption in the story. You should read it, it's really good. But that we, we feel that idea. So there's gonna be pain in work, there's gonna be resistance to work, there's gonna be, especially for men, okay? This crosses over, but especially for men, God says, um, there's going to be this tendency to identify, to hook our identity into what we do, this ambition. Um, and there's going to be a lot of pushback, and there wasn't before because of, because of sin, because we're now being resisted by God's creation. Um, for women, there's going to be even more resistance in the relational area, especially with the husband if you're married, um, um, or, and with children, there's going to be pain in childbearing, whereas before, presumably, there wasn't going to be. And there's going to be identity and idolatry um, hooked into more relationships, and there's going to be pushback there. Your desire, this, this is translated variously um, by, by different translations, but your desire, Lindsay read, your desire shall be for your, excuse me, I have for your husband, but she read contrary to your husband because the ESV later updated it because there's some ambivalence there. What does that mean? It could mean both, but you want, um, you, you want, you're trying to draw him in and he's going out and there's this longing, this unmet longing in even the best of relationships. Um, and that comes from the fall. And that comes from the fall. Christ brings us back into goodness. It's, it's, it's imperfect and it's broken until, we, until we're with him face to face. But here, because of sin, there's this unmet longing. The woman's trying to draw the man in and he's trying to go out. And, and um, because she took the lead, John Currid says this, he says, because the pattern was set in the rebellion, she took the lead and reached out and took the fruit and ate it and gave it to him. And he sat back and did nothing. And so that pattern 
reverberates. She led instead of him and he let her lead and didn't lead. And so that pattern, the tendency of men toward passivity and of women to dominate in relationship and to be manipulative and controlling, again, in our flesh, it's there. It plays out. It radiates in relationships and it causes all sorts of grief. Um, Derek Kidner says, to love and to cherish pledges that we make on, um, before God when we're married to one another as husband and wife. To love and to cherish becomes to desire and to dominate. And you don't, you don't have to be married to see this interaction and, and to have it play out in your own relationships either. Um, not at all. Um, so, so that's there and that's all happening. And we see that all in these very seemingly simple but, but loaded verses Hey, bottom line, before we get to the good news, I know this has been a lot of, but hey, Genesis 3 is tough stuff. You have to dig down. There's good news. There's a ton of amazing good news. We're about to get there. But before we do, I just want to say, to wrap it up, in case I didn't catch you, we're all guilty and we're all hiding hideous things. There's a, there's a singer, Swift John Stevens, who wrote a song about a serial killer, John Wayne Gacy Jr. And among other things, very trenchant lines, powerful song. He says, John Wayne Gacy killed people and put them under his floorboards for months and months and perhaps years. Um, And at the end of the song, Swift John says, 27 people, even more, they were boys with their cars, summer jobs. Oh my God, ooh, are you one of them? And in my best behavior, listen to this, and in my best behavior, I am really just like him. Look beneath the floorboards for the secrets I have hid. We're all hiding hideous things in our lives, pushing people away, pushing God away, keeping ourselves from self-knowledge, pushing things down. Paul says this in his first chapter of his magnum opus, theologically, the book of Romans. He says, we we all suppress, the word there in the Greek is just we push down like you push someone down under the water to kill them, to suffocate them. We suffocate or suppress or push down the truth of God in unrighteousness. Aldous Huxley, I believe it was, said that I am an atheist because I wanted to sleep with my girlfriend. He was honest. So we have these motives that we're often not even honest about ourselves, but we know there's a God, but we push knowledge of that down and do what we want to do. And in case the Jew tries to escape and says, yeah, that's, that's the Gentile, that's the goyim, that's the dog, that's the, un, that's the one that's not God's child, Paul in chapter two of Romans says, oh, you Jews, you're guilty too. Jew and Gentile alike. And then in chapter three, he says, here's the verdict from the Hebrew Bible, from the Psalms. There is none righteous. No, not one. In case you thought you were the one, you're not. We are all caught in this net of sin and it comes from Genesis 3. It comes from this real episode that our forebears took the fruit, disobeyed God, and it spread like cancer through humanity. So um, that's man's condition. Let's, let's quickly flee to God's response or what grace looks like. So that's what death looked like. But what does grace look like? What's God's response? In verse nine, we have this really hopeful thing, verse nine. Again, we might have expected one of two things. Man drops down dead right after, a man and woman right after they eat the fruit, or 
Um, God just comes in like a fire and storm and just blazes and just completely incinerates them in the fire of his holiness. Neither one of those things happen. What happens instead? The Lord in verse nine calls to the man. Stop right there and just enjoy that. Enjoy the grace in that one phrase. The Lord, after a creation destroying rebellion and we did the one thing God said not to do, what happens? In the day you eat of it, you shall surely die. They eat of it. Next thing, verse nine, God called to the man. There's so much grace packed into that phrase. He's calling to them. It's a ray of hope. And what does he say? Three words, two in the Hebrew, even more concise. God does not waste words. Where are you? What trenchant words. How, in, how all-encompassing, how searching. Where are you? He's not asking, and there's a sense in which in a facile surface way, he's asking, okay, where are you? Are you behind the tree? Are you, are you heading for the hills, you know, running, not looking back? Where are you? But really, what? Where are you? Where, where are you here? Where are you here? Where have you gone? So far, far from my presence are you trying to flee. Where are you? Um, but in that question, in every question of God, there's an offer for relationship. Why? Because a question solicits a response. A question says, I still want relationship. And I'm going to ask questions so that you do some soul searching because that's the way we're going to get somewhere now in this relationship. So God is, he's holding out his hand in asking this question and it's a beautiful thing. Where are you? There's so much discipline. There's so much grace. Again, there's an invitation to answer and to dialogue. There's an invitation into relationship. It's really astonishing after what we've read in Genesis 2 and now the fall in Genesis 3. Um, and if you note, just a side note, as God lays out the consequences, he never curses man or woman. He curses the ground and he curses the serpent. He tells them the consequences of their sin and there will be severe, and we've just, we've just sort of elucidated some of those, teased some of those out. There will be consequences. We know there are consequences for our sin, but he does not curse them. There is so much grace packed in here. Um, and the answer to the question, the trenchant question, where are you? Where are you physically? Where are you spiritually, emotionally, intellectually? The answer is, I have no idea. I am lost. Recall Walker Percy's Lost in the Cosmos. I'm adrift. I'm adrift. Notice something else God does in his response. He speaks in verses 14 through 19. He speaks truth, hard truth, okay? Not soft words, but true, piercing, like a sword words of truth. Here's how it's going to be, into the sin, into the problem. And I just wanna say, this is still the way God is. His word is true. It's full of grace, but it's true and we have to let it pierce us before it's gonna do any good. And we can know that God is always going to speak truth to us. And it's only in the truth that we're gonna be set free. The truth of the cross is hard at first. The truth of the cross is that that's what I deserve. That's how evil I am in and of myself because of my rebellion. That's hard. 
But unless we grab that first, there's no grace for us. And as a people, I want to be a people who speak truth. Hard. It's easy just to flit on by. I'm fine. You're fine. We're all fine. Everybody's oh, good, good, good. How you doing? Fine. You don't even wait for a response, right? That's the easiest thing in the world. I do it more often than I'd like to admit. Let's be a community who, like God, speaks truth, hey, in love, who goes in. And we'll talk, I'll talk more about that in a second. Um, something else, though, I want to land on this for just a few minutes that God does. It's wonderful. Verses 9 through 19 are what scholars call a chiasm. Uh, another way to put it is it's a literary mirror. Let me explain. This is a liter- 9 through 19 is a literary mirror. So what do I mean? Who does he go to first? Who does God go to first when he says, where are you? Who's he asking? He's asking Adam, Adam, which means man in Hebrew. He goes to the man, okay, who has the responsibility primarily. He goes to the man, and then he moves to the woman. So man, then he moves to the woman, and then he goes to the serpent, and he addresses the serpent. Doesn't ask him any questions. He just tells him, here's how it's going to be, and he curses him. And then he comes back out to whom? The consequence of the fall to the woman. And then finally to the man. So you have man, man on the outer edges, beginning and end, and then woman, and then right in the middle, is the serpent. So it's a literary mirror. It's like a target, if you can imagine that. And in the bullseye of the target is the serpent, what he says to the serpent. Um, What I want you to get here is this, that in the middle of that curse, God doesn't say, "Cursed, just cursed are you, serpent. What does he do? He gives in the middle of that curse a promise about how someone is gonna come And that someone, the seed of the woman, is going to undo everything that's wrong that's happened because of the fall of Adam and Eve and that we've inherited. He's going to, in the words of the profound philosopher Sam Gamgee, if you've read Lord of the Rings, you know he's not a profound, he's a gardener, but he's he's one of the heroes of the Lord of the Rings. In the words of Sam Gamgee, he says, God is going to, through this promised one, going to make everything sad come untrue. He's going to undo the effects of the curse in us and in his, in his creation. So in the middle, in the white hot core, in the bullseye of the target of this literary mirror, of, of this curse and all of its effects, God steps in with a promise. He enters right in. Um, and again, like I said, the promise is that the one, the reverser of the curse is going to come from what? The, he's going to be the seed of a woman. Okay, now hang on. Hold the phone. This should surprise us. It doesn't, that it doesn't say what? From the seed of the man. And let me tell you why. Um, the, the, what, it, what it's saying is the reverser of this curse will come through a woman, not a man. Okay, Isaiah confirms this much later. In Isaiah 7, he says that this redeemer, this Messiah, this promised one will be born, what? Of a virgin. He won't have a human father. And his name in Isaiah 9, he goes on, will be what? Everlasting Father, Mighty God. In Genesis 5, just coming way back to our text here, we're in Genesis 3. Two chapters later, if you read on, the narrative is kind of paused and there's an overview that's given before we get to Noah. And there's a genealogy. And Moses, the author of of Genesis, he stops and he says, okay, let's just review what's happened so far. And he gives a genealogy, a family history, and he starts with Adam, and he goes all the way to Noah, and he traces this line. And the way that it goes is that um, blank fathered blank, 
blank, fathered blank. It's all fathers and sons, fathers and sons, fathers and sons, no women, no mothers. Okay, so this is the line that's traced. This is typical in the ancient Near East and typical in the Bible. And then if we fast forward, we get to Matthew, the gospel of Matthew. After 400 years of silence, we get this one who has come from the line of David, from Adam, from Abraham. And we get the familiar refrain, his genealogy, and from Eliad, the father of Eliezer, and Eliezer, the father of Mathan, and Mathan, the father of Jacob, and then verse 16. And Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary. See that break? Of whom Jesus was born, who is called the Christ, the Messiah. Jesus Christ is this seed who will come from a woman, fully human to represent you and me, fully man. But his father is God. He will be called everlasting father, mighty God. Only God can reverse this curse. Only man has to, okay? Because only man can represent men. Um, If we look at verse 15, this exquisite verse, this exquisite verse, let me just read it. Verse 15, I will, God says, I will put enmity or hatred between you, he's talking to the serpent, and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Okay, he shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Okay, so get this. Here's how this is gonna happen. This, the first theologians call this the proto Evangelion, the first mention of the evangel, the gospel, the good news of how God is going to undo this curse. How's it going to happen? Well, he gives us a picture, and the first picture we get is that the serpent is going to strike the heel of this man, this seed of the woman who's going to be a man, who's going to undo the curse. And yet, his, so his, his heel will be either bruised or crushed, same word in the Hebrew, but he will crush the what of the serpent? the head of the serpent. So he will be mortally wounded even, severely wounded, but he will decimate, crush, and kill, and conquer the accuser, the enemy, and he will begin to undo all the effects of the curse. Now think about this for a second. Just think about how you kill snakes. You, might, you probably have never killed a snake. Hopefully you've never done it with a body part. <laughs> if you have, come talk to me later. I want to meet you. Um, <laughs> You've maybe used a hoe, you know, or something like that. But if you use a body part, what are you not going to use? Your hand, right? Okay, what you're going to use is your heel. So I'm, I'm belaboring this to make a point. And the point is this. It's a simple one, but profound. The very thing that is struck, that is wounded, that is crushed on this seat of the woman, the heel, is going to be the very thing that he will use to crush the head of the serpent. Do you see where I'm going? Where was Jesus, where was our Savior struck most fiercely? The cross. And it was the cross which looked like and was the ultimate cosmic train wreck. A disaster. We crucified the Son of God. We crucified God. And yet, what? Jesus said, it's for this very reason that I have come. My work is to die in the place of sinful man because of man's evil. I will take all of man's sin and rebellion into myself. At the cross, God showed his power and he paid for all sin and evil. 
from Adam and Eve all the way through us, all the way until he returns again. He absorbed it all on the cross, paid for it, died, buried it, and then rose something new. With the cross is the way that he defeated Satan. Okay, through death, Jesus defeated death. By becoming sin, he paid for sin. With the heel that was struck, he used that very heel to crush the enemy and to get rid of the sin problem for us and to get rid of, to pay for our hell and to get rid of death forever. Um, It's this beautiful, beautiful picture. Um, So the man and the woman aren't cursed, right? But they're rather covered. We didn't read this, but verse 21 says that he he looks at their fig leaves and he's like, that's not gonna work. That's just pitiful. Leaf clothes, no. What does he do? In a world and a creation, presumably without death previously, he kills an animal, an innocent animal, and he takes its skin and he prepares it and he clothes them himself as a father clothes his children with the animal skin. Something dies right here in verse 20 of chapter three. Something innocent dies. Its blood is shed so that the guilty can be covered and can go and can still be in relationship with God, though broken, okay? It's this beautiful other picture of the gospel. But why can they be covered rather than cursed? Because what? He knew that he would step into the white hot curse himself with his own son and become a curse for us. Galatians 3.13 from Deuteronomy 21. He was hung on a tree for us, which is to become a curse. 2 Corinthians 5, he became sin. He who knew no sin as the perfect and innocent sacrifice, he became a sin curse and paid for it so that we could walk. Amazing, Uh, amazing. why does this resonate so deeply with us? We see it in movies, like if you've, this is a throwback, but man, if you're as old as I am or even close and you've seen the original, not Tron Legacy, the original Tron with Jeff Bridges, like 1983 or something old, um, that, that scene where Tron like jumps into the master spinning CPU thing and saves them, you know, he takes, he takes the hit uh, for them so that they can walk. You know, he sacrifices himself. Even in Tron, I'm like, no matter how many times I watch it, I'm sitting here crying because Tron jumped to the CPU and sacrificed himself. Why does that resonate so deeply with us in whatever form? Because just like the fall, it's woven into the fabric of the story of what is. And we find it consummate in the cross, the crossroads of history. And everything converges on the cross and everything goes forth from the cross. I wanna ask you, is it your story? Is your story connected to what God has done for you in Christ, this promised one, this seed of the woman. Have you not just said, yeah, I believe he did that, but I believe he did it for me. I believe he died in my place. I believe I deserve that, but he stepped in. I wanna invite you today to do that if you haven't. And if you have, I want you to invite you again to press into Christ because we are going ever farther in and higher up, aren't we? Um, And lastly, before just a couple points of application, he died not just to save us. Notice the word just. He died to save us from sin and death and hell, but not just to save us, but rather, as I've been saying, what? To reverse the curse. If you see in verse 18, what's gonna be produced when, from the earth when man works? Thorns and thistles. It's a very short way of saying 
man, all creation is going to have the curse embedded into it. There's going to be this resistance in relationships, in work, in everything. We in a relationship with others, with God, even with ourselves. Um, the Scottish flower, we spent four years in Scotland on the doctorate and doing other stuff. And the Scottish flowers, the thistle, they are a people that are well acquainted with hardship. They were traditionally a poor people. Um, the Macin- I come from the McIntyre clan. The clan motto for the McIntyres is per ardue, which in Latin means through hardship. That's a, quite a family motto. It's like a standard, you know? It's not that inspiring. Through hardship, per ardue. Um, that was fairly typical of, of life then and of the Scots. Life is hard. They knew that well. We know that in a different way. Um, Jesus, when he dies on the cross, what is pressed upon his head? A crown, but not a, not, a, not a crown that felt nice to him. A crown, there's no accident about this, a crown of thorns. It was one of the many ways in which we see that he took, he absorbed not just our curse, but the curse that, that seeped like ink and water into all creation and poisoned all things. He took it inside of himself, buried it, and when he rose, he began the process of total reversal. And it is carried on, and this will be some application, through you and through me as we live out the gospel and preach the gospel um, to ourselves and to others. It's encapsulated in the, in the awesome hymn by Isaac Watts, Joy to the World, No more let sin and sorrow grow, nor thorns infest the ground. What? He comes to make his blessings flow far as the curse is found. He won't stop. He will not. The work of the cross will roll on and on until it is finished. And he will return and he will bring us who have looked to him to himself and he will make all things new. And he will, yes, wipe away every tear and it will be better the pain, it will be better that we had felt it, that we had endured the pain and the curse and whatever it is than if we had not because of what he has done at the cross. So a few, um, and he calls those things after he wipes away our tears in Revelation 21, what does he call all of human history preceding that? And it hasn't happened yet, but when he comes and he wipes away our tears and makes all things new, he calls all the whole human story before that the first things. The first things, because guess what? Every, that's just page one of the great novel. And every single page after that is just gonna get better and better and better, and it's not gonna end. It's not gonna end. So just a few quick application points, how to get some handles for this. First of all, we who because of sin are, sin are used to hiding from God and each other and ourselves, we can now know God face to face in the person of Jesus Christ. He has he is the way by which we come face to face with God. 2 Corinthians 4, 6 says, we have the light of the knowledge of the glory of God, what? In the face of Jesus Christ. And John 1, 18 says, no one has seen God, but the only God who is with him, in other words, Jesus, has made him known, has unfolded, or the Greek is exegeted God himself. He shows us, he unpacks every verisimilitude, every Every single wart and wrinkle, if I can say that, of who God is, his personality, his character, what he's like, his compassion, his grace, his power, his mercy, his kindness, Jesus shows us. Jesus unpacks it. So we can know God in Christ, and he is our peace who brings us back to God. The second thing is stop hiding from yourself, from others, from God. 
your shame has been born by the God-man, by the seed of the woman, by Jesus Christ. Uh, we sang about it earlier. Transparency is possible because it's been purchased by Jesus. Um, I'm not the man I was. He was executed with Christ on that tree, should be our anthem, or woman. Um, be known and know deeply, and don't be afraid of people seeing the real you because it's, it's now linked to Christ. Okay, so, we, so our sins don't identify us anymore. Our shame doesn't identify us anymore. So we can be open about that ongoing process of, of having that excavated and carved away through the truth and love that others speak to us. Even when we're hurt and wounded and mistreated, look at what he's done for me in Christ. I can just open up. I don't have to hide anymore. No more leaf clothes. Okay, he's, he has clothed me. He has covered me. Um, thirdly, stop striving to get in. C.S. Lewis has this great, essay called The Inner Ring. It's one of my favorite essays of all time. If you have not read it, read it. It's the, never mind. It's a great essay. And um, in it, he basically talks about how one of the main syndromes that characterizes life on the planet is the inner ring. We try to get into these exclusive clubs and circles where everyone's like us or whatever, and it takes a lot to get there. And once we're there, our energies are then directed toward two things, staying in and keeping others out. It's this huge insecurity The gospel, among other things, is the fact that we have been brought in, invited in, welcomed in, ushered in to the ultimate inner ring, the Trinity, the counsels of the living God. The Father, through Christ, has welcomed you in. And if you come in Christ, there's nothing else you can do about it but just receive and revel and enjoy and let him love you and love him back and let him forgive you and extend that to other people, okay? So we don't need to keep scratching and clawing. You're in. You're in. You don't, you don't need to get in or keep others out. Just relax and enjoy. Enjoy him. Fourthly, and almost finally, life is hard. The fall shows us we can be honest about how broken we are and how broken other things are, the world around us, okay? But we're also, we can be realistic, but we're also people of hope because we, the Bible moves us from a garden to a city, like a garden city. We are a people heading somewhere. And people should be able to tell that by the way that we hold ourselves and know and are known and are open and, and vulnerable and loving and truth speaking. There was a, even by the way we walk, there was, I remember reading about a missionary in China and people could tell in China, the natives, they could tell he was a Christian just by the way he walked down the street in the town. Because there was just a, not a bravado, a humility, but a confidence and an openness to him. He was a man going somewhere. To be a people on a mission who know we are heading somewhere and who we are and just inviting people in. Let's be that kind of people. Let's be that kind of people. And finally, let's see if there's one more thing. Last thing. Finally, fifthly, we are a people, we don't need to ignore the consequences of the fall The Bible is the most honest and at the same time the most hopeful book. The cross is the most honest statement about our egregious sin and our problem, but also the most honest statement about how we've been completely forgiven and loved through the the heart of God and through his son being crushed for us. And so we can be a people who, um, if you notice there's a pattern in what God does in every single interaction in Genesis 3 here, every time in his questioning in beckoning to relationship, in his truth speaking, and then in his going into the middle of the curse, what does he do? He enters into the problem. He goes toward the sin. He goes toward the evil. We 
I pray that because of the gospel, we can be a people who don't run, who aren't sin-shocked, and who don't run from sin, but who go toward it like Jesus did when he was here. He came for sinners. Not a holy club, but a people who know our own sin and know that we're forgiven and who go toward sin in the name of Christ and into that dark place with the light of Jesus Christ and say, he died for you, brother, sister. Come to him, let me show you the way. And it can be a long, and it is a long, lifelong process, but let's be that kind of people who in the name of God enter in like firefighters, okay, who run toward and not away from the fire. Let me, let me pray. Father, I thank you for the gospel. I thank you even for the fall because it led to Christ. And how else would we know how compassionate and full of grace and mercy you are but for the cross? Felix culpa, happy sin, in the words of St. Augustine, Lord, that you brought such wonder and grace and salvation out of such a disaster. We thank you so much for who you are manifesting Christ. And we bless your name. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.